Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. The story you're about to hear is a true birth story. It's the real deal, and it may not be appropriate for sensitive ears. On today's episode... Phone rang again, same number. Picked it up, it was our nurse. She was like, it's happening now, so you have to get up here. And I ran out of the cafeteria, because it was a big hospital. So I ran down all these corridors, and I get in an elevator, which is the one moment where you can't run anymore. And there was a tour happening. All these pregnant women, all of these fathers-to-be in the elevator with me. And I'm like... I'm like standing there just like, gotta go, gotta go. And I even say to everybody in the elevator, I was like, I'm sorry to do this, but I'm going to exit the elevator before you, pregnant women who should absolutely have the right to exit the elevator before I do. I'm going to exit first because my wife is about to start pushing and I need to get back to the room. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to this very special season one finale episode. As you know, my ultimate goal with this show is to dig deep into the details about giving birth that no one usually talks about, to shake off all that sugar coating, to give a platform to new moms who want to tell you the honest truth about what it takes to give life to a little human being, and to talk about all that embarrassing stuff so you can hear about it without having to ask. So this episode is a particularly vulnerable one for me because my guest today is my husband, Joshua Schaefer. And we're going to tell you all about the intimate details of our experiences before, during, and after the birth of our son. Josh is a talented writer, director, and producer. He's the winner of the Best Dad Award for the past two years in a row at our house. (laughs) I love him very, very, very much. And we don't hold back at all in this conversation, by the way. So I hope you're going to feel like a fly on the wall in our house as we discuss all the details of my pregnancy, birth, and our postpartum experience together. Thank you for joining me for season one. My hope is that through this show, you will feel less alone, more prepared, more empowered, and ready to celebrate the magical, transforming superhuman that you are by bringing a new precious life into this world. I hope you will enjoy this little glimpse into my own life. And after hearing my story, I think you'll understand a little bit more about why I decided to create this podcast for all of you. I'm Christy Williams, and this is Birth. How are you feeling about doing this? I'm feeling fine about it. Are you fine with being exposed to the uh, world? I feel like <laughs> just being your partner, some version of me has already been exposed as a result of this. And mm-hmm. I mean that, and I'm totally willing to be exposed. I Do you feel like you have no choice? <laughs> I have confidence in my capabilities and my performance as a partner that I don't mind being exposed. Right. I do want to set the scene a little bit because it is nine o'clock on a Wednesday night. The baby monitor is at my feet. Uh huh. And we both have our respective drinks of choice. Uh huh. Because this is an unusual setup for us. Yeah. So cheers, babe. Cheers. Here we go. So tell me, uh, have you always wanted to be a mother? No. 
it wasn't that I didn't want it. It just, I didn't not want it. You know, it sort of was like, I'll think about it if I ever meet somebody that I want to do that with. I uh, spent a lot of my youth taking care of other people. I had a much younger brother and sister. I spent my teenage years taking care of babies and small children. And then I was a nanny for two years and I sort of got into my 20s and I thought like, well, what do I want to do? What do I want to focus on? And I made the choice to become an artist, to choose an artist's life. And part of that means, you know, that there's unpredictability, that there's a lot of sacrifice with that. Like my mentality going into my career as an actress was that this is my my main love in my life and that this is my, my main passion and this is my focus. And so I didn't really think about having a family or even like getting married or any of those things. And also, I never really dated anyone that I would have considered as a serious life partner. And even my long-term relationship, it was never a thought to me that I would want to have a child with that person. And, and truly, you met me. Yeah, truly, it wasn't until I met you that I thought, oh, okay, like I would want to do this with this person. Well, and I brought it up on our third date and... Props to you for not running for the hills and giving it <laughs> Do you remember a, a what chance. I said? <laughs> I don't. I don't. I think I said something along the lines of, uh, I'm open to it with the right person. Yeah, that's probably right. Yeah. yeah. But that's the truth. We met. You, we started dating. We had a relationship. You know, it yeah. was hot. No, it was. <laughs> hey, don't uh, diminish it. It was. Uh, it was. Um but, you know, it was a process. You were still processing your last relationship. I didn't really want to jump into right. another long-term thing. This is the truth, Josh, is yeah. that when I met you, yeah. it probably took a year of waiting for the other shoe to drop until I finally realized, oh... This guy's the real deal. Yeah, that's some wisdom that you've brought with you from previous trauma, <laughs> yeah. albeit sometimes mild, right. in previous relationships. We all do that, you know? Yeah. I just think I got there a little quicker than you did right? because I'd been thinking about it more. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So let's jump to yeah, we get the married. pregnancy. Yeah. Oh, like, I know you want to have children and I know that I want that with you as well and the way that I was feeling is that honestly I'm probably never going to be ready for this you know just in a, a mental way it's not something you can really be prepared for really it's one of those big life events so I just thought let's just do it sooner than later so we had about a year after we got married yeah and then I had an IUD I took the IUD out and I was thinking cool, this is going to be like a while, my body's going to adjust, and then I'm going to maybe in six months, you know, we'll get pregnant. Didn't happen that way. No. Right away. First first time. <laughs> pretty, pretty much first time. Uh, it was very surprising to me. How uh, did you feel? Uh, surprising, but also like biologically, scientifically speaking, totally a possibility oh, yeah, that yeah. we were just kind of like, it'll happen, but yeah. it happened immediately. And in retrospect, what a blessing now that we know it is a real struggle for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And it just so happened to, and pardon the phrase, as soon as we pulled the goalie, score. Like, that's what it was. <laughs> um, yeah. And it was 
the moment that I found out that you were pregnant was very anticlimactic. Uh, I was in the middle of walking out the door to work. You came out of the bathroom and you were like, I think I'm pregnant. And I was like, what? Okay, so let me tell you my side story. Yeah. I got up from, you know, sleeping and I went to pee and I had been a couple days late from my period. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I didn't know if that was normal after you have an IUD, you know, whatever. But I thought I already had felt a little bit. I just had an instinct that my body felt different. And I thought, hmm, like it wasn't necessarily like the major symptoms. I didn't have any nausea or like really soreness in my breasts or anything, but I just felt, I just felt different. And so I went into the bathroom and I had bought some pregnancy tests for this, you know, occasion preemptively. And um, I just was like, I'll just see. And I was shocked because the it was a digital one and it said pregnant almost immediately. And on the, you know, box, when you read the instructions of how to take a pregnancy test, it said it would take up to a minute. So the fact that it was like, boom, you're pregnant. I was in shock. You weren't just pregnant. You were super pregnant. (laughs) I was like, what? And so I kind of stumbled out in a daze. And I saw that you were like getting your shoes on or picking up whatever you're about ready to go to work. And I just said, Josh, I think I'm pregnant. Mm -hmm. And you looked kind of in shock. And then I remember you saying, you're telling me this now like this. And I don't remember what I said to you, but I remember what I thought, which was, I just found out on a toilet. Like, what do you want? A bunch of balloons? (laughs) It's like that sort of thing where what do women have to like throw a big confetti ball to like their partner, um, but they find out on a toilet. It just seemed a little ironic to me. And I think I was in shock until maybe after the first sonogram we had. I think that the gravity of the situation, you know, it's one thing to think about what it would be like to carry a child and bring a life into the world. It's another thing to have suddenly a force inside you that is moving rapidly, that now it's like bigger than you. I think that just the intensity of first time motherhood, you know, not really understanding what this experience is going to be like. It's just it was just a lot. Yes, I felt very joyful that, you know, we were able to conceive so quickly. I felt very confident that whoever our child was going to be was going to be a magical little human being that we were going to love very much. And I felt a lot of joy about that. I think that I was terrified. Right. I don't think it was immediate elation and joy. No. Um, and I think it's important that people know that because I I feel like that is a common experience. It felt like a big life change. And I hadn't really wrapped my mind around the reality of that until I got the pregnancy test positive. And then I was like, oh, okay. What does this mean for my life? And let's be very clear. It wasn't, didn't feel like a big life change. It was a major life change. Yeah, I like having independence. And uh, so this was a big test of that sort of like trust in my partner in a new way that I had never had to do before. Anyway, so about five weeks, you know, gestation on the dot, I started getting really, really sick. And I was very, very nauseous, throwing up. 
Then shortly after that, by like week six, I had a little bit of bleeding, called the doctor. The doctor said, come on in. We'll just take a look, make sure everything's fine. Just check it out. So they got us a last minute appointment. We went in and saw someone that was not my OB. It was a younger male doctor. And he was very nice, kind of soft-spoken. And he did an internal ultrasound, uh, which was very strange for me to have, you know, me there. And I mean, he's a doctor, so it shouldn't, should be strange, but this young man sticking a wand up my vagina with my husband sitting next to me. But I took a look, and he was able to see that the embryo was in the right place in my uterus and that there was a heartbeat. We actually saw a heartbeat at that, mm-hmm. at that appointment, which was cool because a lot of people don't see it that early. So it was great. Everything looked good. He said, you're fine. You're healthy. You know, go on your way. So after we had our first doctor's appointment, and I just want to say to any husbands that might be listening, go to the appointments. Go to every appointment if you if can. If they can. If it's a little can. tricky right now with the pandemic. They're not allowed. Um, but yeah. yes, if you can go to the appointments, go to the appointments. They are wonderful, eye-opening experiences. Yeah. So the baby seems fine after that first sonogram. The pregnancy starts going, and I was completely blindsided by my first trimester. I had no idea that morning sickness could be that bad. It was like not just being hung over. It was like violently projectile, <laughs> you know, vomiting every day for like 25 times a day. I would say in the first trimester, it was like nonstop. And later on in this, because in, I, I was sick my entire pregnancy, but later on, in the second and third trimester, it did get a little better. It also got better later after I finally got a medication, and I'll get to that. But I was in shock about how sick I was. I mean, to the point where I was just like days I would spend on the bathroom floor while you were at work all day. And I would just feel like, you know, in hindsight, depressed because I felt like completely um not only that, you know, I thought, okay, when the baby gets here, my life is going to change. I didn't realize that my life was going to change during the whole pregnancy as well. As early as it did. As early as six weeks until 35, 36 weeks. And not even in hindsight, in that moment, you were feeling depressed. But I don't know that I was necessarily aware of the fact that I was in a depression. I think that now looking back, I know that that's what was going on. At the time, I I would just felt overwhelmed and sad. And I I didn't even have time to think about it much because I was just hugging the toilet all the time. So I feel like a lot of there's a lot of talk about postpartum depression. But I do feel like, you know, it can happen earlier. Perinatal, it means before, during and after. Well, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. But it was it was real. And on the I hope you don't mind me sharing this. And please we can just cut it out. But no, please do. There were me. moments where I was in the hallway, also sitting on the floor, clutching our dog as we both stared at the bathroom door <laughs> in shock and fear, as we heard what I can only describe as cartoon vomit noises <laughs> coming out of the bathroom, because uh, so this, was not, this was not a morning after drinking a little bit too much vomit. This was a full-body wretch. Yeah, it was next level from anything I'd experienced. And I would say and correct me if I'm wrong, anything you had experienced up to that point. Never, never in my life. I mean, I lost 12 pounds in probably 10 weeks. I was like skin and bones looking at those old photos of myself and like pale as a ghost. 
And the reason it was so comical and probably sounded so ridiculous is that I couldn't even keep any food down. I couldn't even keep, I couldn't keep water down. I couldn't keep a popsicle down. It was like there was nothing there. So my body was trying to get rid of nothing. And that's what the sound was. It was like nothing was coming out. It just was this just noise. horrible, you know, reflex. Roll. Yeah. <laughs> God, it's terrible. Terrible. I'm glad I can laugh about it now. And also, you know, when I would tell people like, oh, I'm feeling really sick, I never really felt like anyone believed me or that they or that they had any context of like how bad it was. That's what I think it is. And I remember feeling so angry every time someone would text me and ask me how I was feeling. And this lasted until like well into my second trimester. I used to feel so angry because I wanted to just be like, I'm feeling like shit. What do you want me to tell you? Can you know? we at least acknowledge that those people's intentions were in the right place? Of course, and, yeah. and I know that. Yeah. But but I I felt like the reason I felt so angry, or one of the reasons, is that I could, didn't have control over the way that I was feeling, and I felt like I had to lie to people to make it sound like I was fine. And, you know, they just want to hear, oh, I'm doing great, and my pregnancy's going great. Because anytime I was honest and I said, oh, I've I've thrown up 15 times today, I'm feeling horrible... The response was always, oh, no, hope you feel better soon, or no response. And if I said, I'm feeling good, then it was great, wonderful, I'm so glad to hear it, you know? And it felt it made me feel like I couldn't be honest about my experience in the moment. And then I thought, no, I need to be extremely honest about this, because no one else has been honest with me. And that was the other thing that made me feel angry. Mm-hmm. I felt like no one had ever been honest with me before. And if they had been honest with me, then I felt like I was the only person in the entire world that ever felt this way. And that, you know, so, from feeling already depressed to feeling like alone on top of that, it it like drove it down much further because I felt completely alone in my experience. How come I never heard about, oh, pregnancy can be really hard? That would be nice. So what we discovered was that morning sickness was a colloquialism. It was not <laughs> actually just morning sickness. It could very well be all day, every day sickness. All day and night. Yeah, it was constant. And everyone kept telling me, oh, just wait until, you know, after 12 weeks, it's going to get better. Even my doctor was like, you know, you're going to be fine. Just wait till the second trimester. Just keep your head down. So I was like just waiting and waiting, waiting for this magical day where I was going to just suddenly flip a switch because everyone said you're going to flip a switch and suddenly you're going to feel better and the clouds are going to part and it's going to be sunshine. And that day never came for me. Hyperemesis Gravidarum has gotten a lot of press lately because some pretty high-profile celebrity moms have opened up about their personal experience with it, including Amy Schumer and Kate Middleton. But in case you've never heard about hyperemesis, I'm going to tell you a little bit about it. Hyperemesis Gravidarum is a condition characterized by severe nausea, vomiting, weight loss, and electrolyte disturbance. How can you tell the difference between regular morning sickness and hyperemesis? Well, with regular morning sickness, you may experience nausea that is sometimes accompanied by vomiting. It will subside at 12 weeks or soon after. And the vomiting does not cause dehydration, does not cause significant weight loss, and allows you to still keep some food down. Hyperemesis causes nausea accompanied by severe vomiting. 
nausea that does not ever subside. It is constant for the whole pregnancy and vomiting that causes dehydration, weight loss, and an inability to keep any food down. Sometimes a doctor might be hesitant to diagnose you with hyperemesis or give you medication to help you cope if you're managing to stay hydrated enough to keep you out of the hospital. This was my doctor and it frustrated me very much. I had to fight and fight and fight for a prescription to help me keep any food down. If you lose 5% of your pre-pregnancy weight, that's a red flag that you might have hyperemesis. I lost over 10% of my body weight and my doctor was still hesitant to give me any medicine. My advice is try a different doctor. I made an appointment with a different doctor in my medical group who ended up prescribing me medicine called Zofran. And honestly, It never completely took away the problem, but it did help lessen the amount that I was vomiting. It made me more functional. I could go to work. And eventually my own doctor did come around and continued that prescription. And she did give me a referral to see an acupuncturist. So this is my top tip for anyone who's really struggling with severe nausea and vomiting. Go see an acupuncturist. I did not believe in them until I was pregnant. And then I experienced the magic. And now I am singing their praises. Do it sooner than later. I did not start seeing an acupuncturist until towards the end of my second trimester. And I really wish I'd started sooner because it really helped me. Acupuncture alongside the medication was really the only thing that gave me hope and kept my sickness at bay just enough to keep going during those times when I just really didn't think I could do it anymore. Advocate for yourself. Be a squeaky wheel. Get the help you need. Anyways, fast forward, it did get better at 35 weeks. And at that point, I had really bad heartburn. I was going to say, it was at the end, which yeah. is, there's a whole other range of things that cause discomfort right, at that right, point. But right. that was probably the best you felt. Oh, I felt like the best in the last month of my pregnancy. And most people feel terrible. And the other thing that is important to say that I want to mention is that it took me a very long time to start gaining weight. Um, because I was so ill and I couldn't keep any food down. I did finally gain the right amount of weight, but it took a long time. And I felt like kind of judged a little bit by people being like, you're too small. Like I had people saying that to me. I just felt like on both ends of the spectrum, people get judged for gaining too much weight and then people get judged for not gaining enough weight. And it's sort of like, just leave the mom to be alone. As long as your doctor says you're fine, just to cut out the noise. You know, that's what I would say to to moms. It's like, if your doctor or midwife is telling you, okay, you need to either watch your weight or you need to either gain some more, then listen to that. And I think, I just think that the the overall message is like, take care of yourself first, mom to be, and forget everything else. Even the supplements that you were supposed to take, you wouldn't be able to keep down and they would make you feel terrible. Oh, you mean the prenatal vitamins? Yeah. Oh, I could not keep those down. I remember talking to my doctor about the, specifically the prenatal vitamin thing. And she explained that it's very, very important to take prenatals before you get pregnant and in the early stages because that folic acid is very important for the neural um, tube development and all that. And then it's important to take iron at the end of your pregnancy. And she said, basically, if you can try to take your supplement or at least take an iron pill at the end, you know, as we're coming into giving birth, the reason is that we don't know how much blood you're going to lose. And so that's why I'd like to boost up your iron content is for that reason. And I was like, oh, okay. 
So let's talk about our birth plan. Mm-hmm. So I have never been the kind of person that has shied away from taking an a, like a Tylenol if I have a headache. I think, hey, great. I live in a time of, you know, history where I have options for pain management. So everything I'd ever heard about having an epidural sounded awesome. You know, it sounded like it was going to be a way to help me cope with the pain and get the baby out and have a pleasant experience giving birth. And that's the story that I was told. Like that, that's the story that I heard from all my friends is like, oh, once the epidural kicked in, everything got really nice. And it was smooth sailing after that. And then I pushed the baby out and the rest is magic. Bada bing, bada boom. Yeah. Happy, happy, happy. So, you know, I just thought, if I'm just going to take an aspirin when I have a headache, why wouldn't I get an epidural if I'm having some bad birthing pains? You know, let's just do this. And so that was my plan. It was always hospital birth. It was always getting epidural. I have our birth plan pulled up right here. Oh, do you? Yeah. <laughs> okay, to remind me what it says. Yes. So a couple of things. Uh, atmosphere should be calm and dark. Yeah. Possibly with music. Aromatherapy is mm-hmm. an option. Mm-hmm. Uh, acupuncture, if available. Right, because my hospital did it. have midwives yes. that sometimes who were on staff to apply acupuncture if it was available, which is cool. But that didn't happen in, in our situation. I, I don't know if I asked for it. I don't think I did, but it wasn't available at the time. Christy would like to avoid an episiotomy. Would <laughs> like to try pre yes. perineal perineal? Perineal. Perineal mm-hmm. massage. Christy is planning to have the epidural when she decides it is really needed. Does not want to give birth in stirrups. Would prefer to use the birthing bar. Would like to see the placenta before it is discarded. And the reason why I want to read our birth plan Mm. is because one of the best pieces of advice that I got was have a birth plan, be prepared to scrap it at a moment's notice yeah, and change it and be prepared to throw it out the window. Yeah. Before we get to the moment of birth and the birth of our child, Mm -hmm. uh, answer me this. What was sex like during pregnancy? (laughs) Um, I love that I gave you my questions. You know, a lot of times I didn't feel like having sex because I had been throwing up all day. You know, you have to be in the mood to have sex. I think that generally speaking, when I was feeling good, sex during pregnancy was great. When, you know, when I was in the mood, it was, it was, it didn't feel different. It just took a little creative positioning with when the belly got big. How did you feel sex was like during pregnancy? I mean, Mr... I thought it was going to be strange. Oh, did you? I thought it was going to be... I thought maybe I was going to be inside my own head about the fact that my child was inside of you. Oh, and okay. that I was also... You know, it's 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 a... It's a I, I don't know. I expected it to be one way, and then it was very not a big deal and natural and normal and wonderful. Interesting. Because I feel like in the third trimester is probably when we were most sexually active... Uh-huh, because I wasn't throwing up as much. Correct. Yeah. Um, you know, now that we're talking about it, I'm remembering times where it's like, it's weird to be intimate with someone when you're pregnant, and especially after, later. you know, a certain point, you feel that baby moving all the time. And, like, I, he used to hit... 
Our kid used to hiccup inside me all the time in the end, like the last trimester, like all the time to the point where I asked the doctor, is something wrong because he's hiccuping constantly? He used to move constantly. He was always moving. So that is weird, you know, like there, there is something that's strange about like, you know, that women go through in general, where it's just like, you're not alone, you know, you're there's someone there with you. And so it is a strange experience, because sex is a shared experience between two people. But it's kind of feels like there's like a visitor, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I I feel like um, from from in a bird's eye view from the outside, it, it, it does seem strange. But yeah, when you're living it, and when you're one of those two partners mm-hmm. it is it didn't feel strange yeah at all. it's not a big it didn't deal. feel strange at all yeah, yeah it's not a big deal honestly no that like for me the the pregnancy sex was was great it was not even an issue at all it was the postpartum that was different yeah and hard and more challenging for sure so my due date was april 20th Yep. And on the morning of April 16th, so it was about like 6.30, 6.45 in the morning, I woke up suddenly and I felt like a tiny little gush, but it was like a tiny little like, oh, did I pee myself? I don't know. Because at the end of pregnancy, you just, you know, you're black, you got to pee all the time anyway. So I like run to the bathroom and I peed and I was like, huh. And I had read that if you're, if you think that maybe your water broke, but you're not sure that you should put a pad in your panties. And then just if, if it continues to get wet, then you know that it's not, you know, urine, that it's your water breaking. So I did that. And then I thought, well, if my water did break, I really want to like dye my hair because I, that was the only thing that I hadn't done and I thought, if I don't do it now, it's going to be a while till I can probably do that if I'm going to have a baby right now. Right. So I like popped my head around into the bedroom and you were sound asleep. And I said, Josh, hey, um, I think my water just broke, but uh, I'm going to dye my hair real quick <laughs> and take a shower. And you were like, what were you? I, I mean, uh, yes, that's pretty accurate, but it was like... Should we call the hospital? Should we call our doctor? Should we, you know, find out what we should do? And you were like, I don't think it did. It might have. I'm not sure. It was such a small amount. It was such a small amount. And I was just like, cool. You do that. I'm going to go take our dog on a two-mile walk. But I don't think I did a full one that You didn't go back to sleep? I don't remember. You Uh, just got it. I definitely did not go back to sleep. No, I (laughs) definitely did not go back to sleep. But I took her for a walk while you showered, you I, dyed your hair, I dyed her. You and I, I was like, makeup, I'm gonna do you, right. You did the whole thing. You did the whole nine, and we called the. I called the triage line and talked to a nurse. Yeah. yeah, and at that point, I mean, I had taken a shower, and it's like, well, maybe some more came out in the shower, but other than that, knows, like right. nothing was really coming out into my pad, and I was like, I don't know, maybe t- a tiny, tiny bit. So I called and they said, look, chances are it didn't, but why don't you just come in and see and then we'll just be able to tell you one way or the other. And then if it didn't break, then you can just go home and not worry about it. Uh, And so we packed the car with our bags and... The plan was, I'll drive to the hospital, you'll get out, go in Mm -hmm. and see if if this is the false alarm or if this is the real deal. Yeah, I'll just run upstairs real quick and then I'll probably come right back down. No big deal. We can go on our day. And if it is the real deal... 
I will go take our dog to our boarding facility Mm -hmm. and then come back to the hospital and join you. Right. And it took a while. It took a little bit longer than we thought it would. Yeah, um, I went up. They had asked me a bunch of questions. They hooked me up to a monitor. The midwife that I had been seeing at the hospital, the hospital that I delivered at, they happened to work in tandem with midwives and OBs. They work together especially towards the end of a pregnancy. And then there's always a midwife on staff in the labor and delivery unit, which I thought was really cool. But the midwife happened to be there that I knew and that I was my, you know, particular care provider. And so she popped in. She's like, oh, great. She looked at the monitor. She said, you're contracting every five minutes. That's wonderful. And I said, what? Really? I was feeling nothing. I could not believe that I was contracting. And what went through my mind was, oh, maybe this isn't going to be as painful as I thought. Because yeah. I want to remind didn't everybody, know. it's April 16th on this, at this moment, yeah, in the 16th. morning. Uh, so I remember very distinctly that the, the doctor that was on call, he was a young man. And when your water breaks, they don't want to actually give you a vaginal exam because you're at high risk of getting an infection and they want to keep any sort of infection out of your uterus. So he just did a little swab and he said, I don't think that your water probably broke, but we'll just take this next door and we'll find out. We'll do a test. And then he left and a few minutes later he came back and he said, great, that was amniotic fluid. Your water has broken. We're going to admit you. They did a a vaginal exam just to see how far along I was. And at that time they estimated that I was probably about one centimeter dilated. So I call you. Yeah. So then we get admitted into the hospital. I drop our dog off and come back. We get into the room. At this point, uh, the sun is shining. Birds are singing. (laughs) We have a wonderful room with a nice little view. Beautiful. But we were Mm fresh-faced and (laughs) starry-eyed, and we were ready to have a baby that day. Yeah. And I will say something that's kind of interesting, which is that the doctor wanted to sort of start at me on Pitocin right away. And the midwife advocated for me. She said no, 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 let's wait a little bit. There's, you know, we'll have you on a monitor. We'll make sure that the baby's okay and everything. But let's just see if your body goes into labor on its own. And so we decided that's what we were going to do. And so for the first few hours that we were there, I ordered some lunch and we did a little walk in the garden. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was feeling nothing. So about, I guess like four, four hours after, it was like afternoon, They come back in and they say, I think we should start with Pitocin. And now I know that I could have asked for a little bit more time. But, you know, at the time I was like, great, if you think that's what I need, I had complete trust in them. They started me on Pitocin. And after they started the Pitocin, that's when they told me that I couldn't leave the bed and I had to eat only clear liquids from then on. Right. Record scratch. Would have been good information to have before being put on the Pitocin. Not that it would have changed anything, but just one of those moments where it was like, would have helped us mentally prepare for what we were in for had we known that beforehand. Anyways, what do you remember about that first night we were there? It was long. It was a long night. You ended up getting a migraine headache. Yeah, really bad migraine. Uh, And... I remember that you left and went home. I went home to get broth. Right. I (laughs) heated up an entire carton of veggie broth and put it in two to-go coffee thermoses Uh in the hopes that it might stay good for the entire time you were on Pitocin. 
naively not knowing how long that was going to be. Yeah, we did not know. So it's like the middle of the night, the first night, the contraction started to get more painful, but it was still like maybe a four from one. They had a little scale of faces. Yes, (laughs) everything, everything was scale one to 10, right? Pain scale of one to 10. That scale was a a big part of the experience. Everything was how are you feeling scale of one Mm -hmm, to 10. mm -hmm. The other thing was the monitors, the heart rate monitors, your Mm -hmm. heart rate and the baby's heart rate. Tell me about that. Was my everything when Mm. we were in that room. I was completely 100% always focused on that. You know, it was a live feed of uh, you, you were able to talk to me, but it was a live feed of how the baby was doing. Right. It's like we're on a rocket ship and you're on. Uh... It was like being in mission control. And <laughs> yeah. I was just like, you know, checking the oxygen levels of the astronauts, basically. And yeah. that's, that's, that's basically what you're doing. But that became everything to me. Like mm. I was just always focused on that on you, too, as well. But those heart rates. I just remember that being my whole world. Yeah. And then obviously that comes into play later on. But Right. So I was very uncomfortable and the doctors come in um, to check my dilation in the middle of that first night, you know, the night of the 16th. And it was a big blow because I thought here I'm progressing. I'm feeling pain. I wasn't ready for an epidural yet. I thought I could still handle this. But we had been there probably at that point, 14 hours. That's probably about yeah, right now. 14, maybe even 15. Yeah. Maybe 15 yeah. hours. And they checked me and I was still one centimeter dilated. So no progress had been made. And and I was crushed. And you're feeling pain. Now. And I had a migraine and I was contracting. I was not comfortable. And our very, very sweet nurse, she said, you know, it's okay if you want to take something. I can give you a small dose of fentanyl just so you can sleep because this is going to be a long road. So uh, they gave me a small dose of pain reliever and I had not a great reaction to that. I didn't like the way that the morphine made me feel. It did it made me feel out of control and more anxious. I don't know what I would have done differently necessarily because I was in pain and I did want to sleep and I was feeling very anxious and I thought that sleep would help me and that the medication would help me, but it just sort of put me in a state that was like not a happy place to be in. And I don't actually remember getting much sleep, maybe a couple hours. Yeah, no, I I remember hospital sleep being terrible sleep. Yeah. And I want to say that I think it was about this time that it really came into focus for us that this was going to be something that could take up to 72 hours Actually, I think it was a little bit later because I got really, really, really concerned more towards the point where we were hitting the 24 hour mark Mm -hmm. because I had an idea in my head and I believe it's something that my mother had told me, you know, she said something like, oh, they won't let you labor for more than 24 hours. And so I was concerned that if I was going to go past 24 hours, that it was going to be an automatic C-section. And it's completely false, by the way. But I was very, very anxious. And I remember very specifically that I expressed that fear to a nurse. And I said, well, how long do I have? And she said, what do you mean? No, no, we're here for as long as it takes. And the other thing that I didn't understand that I was experiencing at the time was that I had premature rupture of membranes, which means that my water broke before my body was ready to go into labor. And they gave me a little bit of time for my body to like go into labor on its own. It didn't. Now I know I probably could have stayed home a little longer 
probably could have asked for more time at the hospital once I got there. But the truth is, even with the Pitocin, it was not progressing. So it's very, very likely that my body was wouldn't have been ready anyways. But that made me feel a lot better because I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So that first night, it was rough. The next morning, I'm continuing to be on Pitocin. I'm continuing to have these contractions. And a different midwife came in and a different doctor came in and they came in to check me and there hadn't been any progress or a very little bit, maybe like half a centimeter. Mm -hmm. And I felt like just bursting into tears. And I remember that she tried to stretch my cervix manually. She reached her fingers in and... It was extremely painful. And I remember having like a surge of anger about it. She didn't prep me that it was going to feel painful. She just kind of went in there and did it. I feel like she did ask or at least run it by you that this is something she wanted to do. She informed me that that's what she wanted to try. And I gave her the permission. But it would have been nice if she had said, this is going to (laughs) hurt. Really bad. Because it hurt. I remember. I remember that. So the morning is going by and we asked for a break because I was just mentally, I was not doing well. Yes. Yeah, with... so no progress had been made. Yeah. And we were thinking like, okay, the Pitocin's not doing really anything at this point. Yeah. You were hungry, exhausted. Yeah. You hadn't gotten out of the bed. Yeah. The... I just really wanted a shower. Right. I was like sweaty and annoyed and I just, I felt like I have to get up or I'm going to lose it. And the one caveat is when they put you on Pitocin, they slowly increase the dosage over the time that you're on it. Mm-hmm. And if we took the break, we had to accept the fact that you'd have to start at the lowest dosage again. We said, it's worth it. Let's take a break. Yeah. Honestly, it really did help my Big mental time. state because I was able to have some real food and take a nice walk outside and... I felt a little more ready to like get back into it. So we go back into it. And this is another thing about like talking to your nurses and advocating and expressing your sort of desires and wishes. Because I remember expressing that I hated the fact that I had to be strapped to the bed and it was making me want to crawl out of my skin. And the nurse said, well, you know, there is this new device that we got. It's a wireless monitor. We haven't really tried it. Like, they hadn't even taken it out of the box. They had just gotten it at the hospital. Yeah, I want to say they had, like, three of them they had like for three the whole of them. hospital. Right. By the way, our nurses were incredible across the board. Yeah. She was like, oh, well, maybe I can talk to them and see if we can try out this new wireless monitor. And that was awesome. And it did work. And it was really cool because I could get up and go pee by myself without having them to help me unhook everything and then rehook me back up. I could walk around the room. I was able to sit on the birthing ball and try to use that to like help me deal with the contractions. Because like once I got hooked back on the Pitocin, things started moving and my pain started going up. They checked me. I still had no progress with my dilation, uh, you know, but my pain was really intense. And so I asked for an epidural. Yeah, you were at a 7 out of 10 at that point, which is real serious pain. Totally. My goal was always to not ask for it until I really, really felt like I needed it. And I really felt like I needed it at that point. So they gave me the epidural. I did start to feel better. The pain was manageable, but then time was just like slowly ticking by. So we're going into the night, the second night that I'm there. They checked again. still very minor progress, like two or three centimeters dilated. That was it. And at that point, I had been there 38 hours. Yeah. And I was going out of my mind. 
And also at that point, there started to be concerns the baby might be in a little bit of distress. I remember at what point... The heart rate started to fluctuate a little bit. There was a moment where the heart rate dropped. And I remember waking up to people flooding into our room and turning on the lights and just being like... We have to look at this and... Yeah. yeah. And shortly after that, they put a catheter into my uterus and put in some synthetic amniotic fluid to give my baby some relief from the pressure That's right. of having no fluid in there. Yeah. The baby's heart rate returned to normal. Everything looked fine. And then shortly after that, like my epidural stopped working. It stopped working on the right side of my body. First, I kept topping myself off, pushing the button, and it just wasn't giving me relief. And the pain was increasing and increasing and increasing, and I couldn't get comfortable. And at that point, I mean, this is maybe 10 p.m. on the 17th of April or something. I started shaking a lot. It was, it shattered the idea of the epidural for us, because I think you thought, get the epidural, smooth sailing after that, and that was not the case. No, it was wearing off, and then it was no longer working. Let's talk about some epidural statistics. According to Evidence-Based Birth and the National Institute of Health, studies have shown that more than 60% of women in the United States choose to have an epidural place to manage their pain during labor and childbirth. But did you know that approximately 12% of the times that an epidural is placed, it doesn't work? Yeah, people don't usually talk about this one. 12% of the time, an epidural will not block your pain fully or at all. This is usually due to the placement of the epidural, the anatomy of the woman's central nervous system, or just simply labor is progressing a lot more quickly than anticipated. Look, I'm sharing this rather unpleasant fact with you today because this is exactly what happened to me and I was completely unprepared for it. I, like most moms in this country, was under the assumption that by choosing to have an epidural, I was choosing a pleasant, mostly pain-free birth experience. The story that we're told is, get an epidural, everything will be super pleasant and you won't feel pain. The end. The facts are certainly more complicated than that. In 2018, 3.8 million women gave birth in the United States. And if those stats are correct, that means that almost 2.3 million of those women gave birth using an epidural. So again, if the stats are correct, then that means that 273,600 women who got an epidural in 2018 did not receive pain relief from it. The odds are definitely in your favor. Chances are that if you choose to get an epidural, it will work. It works 88% of the time, and you will experience a great amount of pain relief in your childbirth experience. But if you're one of the unlucky ones like I was, I just want you to know that it's in your best interest to learn and practice some different pain relieving techniques with your partner to help you cope on the day if you happen to receive an ineffective epidural block. And also talk to your doctor about other options for pain relief if this happens to you. They may allow you to try nitrous oxide. I didn't even know that or think about that at the time. Or they might suggest some other ways to help you cope. But you can do this. You can do this. Either way, you can do this, mama. I just want you to be prepared for every eventuality so that when you're in the moment, you feel empowered to take care of yourself in the best way you can. 
during all this time, there's like shift changes of nurses happening. And we got this new nurse that came in that was incredible. She had been working in this hospital for like 35 years. And she really helped me feel a little bit more sane in a time that I felt completely out of control. And she's actually the one who kind of explained to me that my water had broken before I was ready to go into labor and that it was okay that it was taking a long time. And sometimes it took days. Like she was the first kind of nurse that just really like got in my face and was like, it's okay, you're doing fine. And that gave me like a lot of hope. She's also someone who they hadn't checked me in a while because, you know, they don't want to check you that much when your water has broken. But with her experience, she just said, I'm speculating that maybe your baby is sunny side up. His head is down, but most babies are born facing your rear end. He was facing sort of my belly um, button. Yeah, like my belly button. And so as he's trying to come down and enter the birth canal, it's just a more awkward position. Right. So she checked. She confirmed that he was facing the wrong way. And that's when it became very clear that you were experiencing back labor. And I didn't really understand what that was until later. And at that point, I was four centimeters dilated. And also during that moment, she discovered that there was some green color in the fluid on her glove. And so that means that he had already pooped in the womb and that he had expelled his meconium. That was slightly alarming because it was something that he can inhale in the womb that, you know, one of the things that the NICU is there for when babies do that is to make sure it's not in their lungs. Right. It it just, it's another complication. And, And I think at this point, The epidural stopped working. The progress was slow. You were shaking. You were feverish. Your pain had returned with a vengeance. Like you were all the way. It was blocking nothing. Right. So I was feeling everything. I mean, it's safe to say that I was screaming out loud and crying. Yeah, you're now at a nine. I was probably at my limit uh, there. I mean, I don't know. You were there. <laughs> no, you were. I was you, out of my mind. You were. I so was we like got... climbing the bed, like clinging onto the bed. But it was all these things back to back to back. We were both very demoralized. It was a rough moment. I felt helpless. Yeah. The baby's heart rate was still kind of fluctuating yeah. more than it had been earlier on. It was demoralizing. Yeah, there. I was already had been in so much pain for hours and I had been shaking for hours. I could not control my shaking. My teeth were chattering. And on top of that, I was only four centimeters. And I was like, are you serious right now? Four centimeters of? Ten, you know? And I'm like, I'm in this amount of pain? And I have to, like, go six more centimeters? I'm not even halfway. Are you kidding me right now? Like, I was losing it. I don't even know how I got through the next couple hours. It was a fever dream the next few hours. Yeah. And it was in the early morning hours that you were absolutely at your peak you you couldn't take it anymore right so now we're in the morning of april 18th right i've been there since the morning of april 16th i'm feeling at my lowest i can't hardly talk i'm in a terrible state and there was a concern about you know how long is the baby going to be okay like he be was recovering to... his heart tones were recovering but it was a roller coaster ride but for it him. wasn't it was still like there were a lot of scary moments where there was like is it going to recover Okay, okay, he recovered, he's fine, you know. And the one thing I will say is I didn't feel ever pressured by my medical staff. They were on my side and they were really like going to wait it out with me as long as we were safe. Yeah. Like there was no issue there. Like they were really fantastic. However, 
they were preparing me for an emergency C-section because I wasn't progressing and the baby wasn't doing great. So they, they said, you know, the last sort of option that we can give you is to replace the epidural to give you a second epidural, basically. How, right. how would you describe that? They gave us the choice of a second epidural, of removing your current epidural, resetting and getting a new epidural. There was no guarantee that it was not going to have the same block that you experienced with the first one. And also you were in now level 10 pain. And the epidural is a delicate process that involves... You have to sit still. You being still, which was impossible at this point. Yeah. And um, I was also still physically shaking. Right. Like, that's, it, what, that's what, that's what yeah, I'm saying. Impossible yeah, at this yeah. point. It was basically, it felt like it was going to take a miracle to and, get this new epidural placed yeah. at that point. And yeah. it was it was not an automatic decision, but we'd gone that far at that point. You had endured all of that. Let's just give it a shot, yeah. right? So enter Dr. Tosh. I love him. Who amazing was our second anesthesiologist. Anesthesiologist, yeah. I'll tell you why I love him is because he got in my face, he looked at me in the eye, and he told me some real business. And he didn't beat around the bush. He said, we need to manage your expectations about possibly having an emergency C-section because if I cannot manage your pain through this epidural, we're going to try. But if it can't be done and you're still in a great amount of pain, then the traditional way of having a C-section where you're awake is going to be off the table. So if this doesn't work and things are not progressing and your baby is in distress, then you need to start mentally preparing for having an emergency C-section and we will have to put you under. Meaning you don't get to meet your baby right away. Right. And then all the things that I wanted, like skin to skin right away and nursing right away and all that things, it just would have changed. And I really appreciated that brutal honesty because it helped me so much just say, okay, I trust you. Thank you for telling me the truth. And we're on the team together. Yeah. You know, that's how it felt. And I would say if there's a lesson to be learned there, it's ask questions, demand communication, find out as much as you can, because not everybody who works on a medical team is going to be as communicative as he was. And we were very lucky to have that doctor. Yeah. He had like the best bedside manner of anyone I've ever met in my life. He was so there. Yes. We both agree on that. Yeah. And 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 also he kind of had this attitude of like, he believed in me, like I was going to be okay. Like he's like, I'm going to help you either way. You're going to be okay. Yeah. So for me, the most intense moment was the placing of the second epidural. You know, they they inject some surface anesthesia for the injection site. Mm -hmm. They removed the previous one, no problem but you were in level 10 pain. Let's remind everybody of that. At this point, you were shaking uncontrollably. And the anesthesiologist basically put it on me to like... Hold me down. Make sure we're we're as still as possible. And we were forehead to forehead, and we were both crying, and we were both like... It was intense. It was as intense as anything gets. Sweating, crying, forehead to forehead, just we're going to get through this. This is it. And meanwhile, this guy is making a putt from 25 feet (laughs) on an uneven green and it was not easy because you were probably still shaking even all but despite our best efforts yeah uh and this guy nailed it he nailed it yeah yeah i mean it didn't hit right away but i i got some relief from it 
and more release than I had from my first one. Yeah, not some. It worked. It blocked it. And um, the thing was, because the baby was facing his his like nose was towards my navel. Let's just say like he was facing up. That was one of the concerns that they had that it, it would be harder for him to maneuver down the birth canal in that position. He wasn't like hitting the right points to come down and open my cervix up, you know, in the way that he should have been. Yeah, so I finally got some relief. And I think at that moment, that was the first time that I thought, oh, okay, is this what an epidural is supposed to feel like? That was a very much felt like a clouds parting moment, because we had you'd finally gotten some relief, some real relief. And it just felt like we had a moment to breathe. Yeah. So they gave me a little bit of time to rest, and then I don't remember how long it was, but they came back uh, in a little while, and they checked me again, and the miraculous thing was, not only was I fully dilated to 10 centimeters, but the baby had turned. His nose was facing, you know, towards the ground, and and it was like, okay, we're good. We're, We're good to push. And our nurse, God bless her, she said, okay, just so you know when everyone left the room. A little sidebar. Yeah, a little sidebar. She's like, I'm not supposed to maybe tell you this, but if I were you, I would ask for some time to rest because you've just been through a lot. And now that you finally have some pain relief, pushing can take several hours, okay? I would ask for some time, like half an hour, just so you can take a nap. And I was like, oh, okay. Like that wouldn't have not even occurred to me to ask that. Also, you know, at the time, like, I didn't really understand that I could ask my doctor for things. And people need to understand that. Like, you sh- you are in control of asking for a little extra time. Like, if the baby, the baby was stable, I was stable, I could take a little nap that was going to help with my energy and pushing more effectively, then let's do it. So we asked the doctor. They agreed um, because, you know, they wanted me to sort of start pushing right away. Why don't you tell us what happened next? So we, w- we went from bad news, bad news, bad news to... A, a string finally, of good news good and it news, was yeah. it was really like okay a moment to breathe a moment to reassess you were able to get some rest at that point you were completely tapped out because you had been through a hellish night i went through it with you i forgot to eat for that night pretty much and our nurse god bless her was like christy get some rest and dad why don't you go down to the cafeteria and get some food because it's mm-hmm. important they eat we don't know how long it's going to take blah 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 we can start pushing in an hour, mm-hmm. is what she said. We can get an hour. And so I went down to the hospital cafeteria, got a sandwich, sat down at a table. I feel like I got maybe four or five bites into it. My phone rang, a uh, number I didn't recognize, ignored the call, kept eating. Phone rang again, same number. Picked it up. It was our nurse. She was like, it's happening now, so you have to get up here. And I ran out of the cafeteria. I ran because it was a big hospital. So I ran down all these corridors and I get in an elevator, which is the one moment where you can't run anymore. You have to just kind (laughs) of sit there and whatever. And there was a tour happening of the the, the maternity ward. uh So it was like all these pregnant women, all of these fathers to be in the elevator with me. And I'm like, I'm like standing there just like. Hurry up, hurry gotta up. Gotta go, gotta go, gotta go. <laughs> and, and I even say to everybody in the elevator, I was like, I'm sorry to do this, but I'm going to exit the elevator before you, pregnant women who should absolutely have the right to exit the elevator before I do. I'm going to exit first because my wife is about to start pushing and I need to get back to the room. And they were all very 
happy yeah, congratulations oh, go get it you know you're like and just you wait <laughs> literally like the door opened as soon as it was open wide enough for me to like sideways step out i was down the hall and into the room and it was go time yeah and let me tell you what happened while you were gone so you leave i'm like settling in to take a little bit of a nap and shortly thereafter, the baby's monitor starts to go. His heart rate had some trouble again. He's in distress. A bunch of doctors come in. The doctor says, oh, sorry, we're going to have to go now. Like it's now to push. She leaves again. And the nurse says, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do some practice pushes. I said, my husband, my husband's not here. She said, okay, where is your phone? And I had been there so long and I hadn't looked at my phone in a long time because I don't want to, I want, I don't want to see texts from anybody asking what's going on because nothing had been going, you know what I mean? So I just had abandoned my phone a long, long time ago. I look across the room. There's a mess. I'm like, I don't, I have, I don't know where my phone, she said, What's your husband's number? I go, <laughs> I don't, oh, okay, okay. I, I promised myself I'd re- memorize some phone numbers because, like, to be honest, everyone doesn't memorize phone numbers anymore because it's all in their phone. I don't know how it happened, but I pull this number from my brain and I, I tell her, and I was like, I think that's it. She calls, he doesn't pick up. I was like, but oh no. My, gets maybe. my voicemail, knows yeah. it's me. Okay, so she knows it's you. So, Anyway, so finally, I was like, oh, good. She gets him. And they had me do practice pushes several times. So we're going to do it like three times. And so at that point, the doctors are already there. The nurse is there. They're telling me, uh, you know, how to push, what to do. And the doctor says, oh, yeah, you're pushing wonderfully. This baby's going to be out in 20 minutes. I love it. You're an, You're pushing great. And I'm thinking, no, no, no wait, 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 my husband's not here. My husband's not here. Like after almost three days in the hospital, if he's like not here when the baby comes out, like this is not good. This is not good. She's like, honey, we got to get this baby out. Uh, We can't wait for him. We got to go. And so they had already like, I had already been, I started pushing already by the time you, you came in, right? So you run in, you grab my hand. I remember I was like so focused on pushing that I did not want you touching me. I was like, I remember at what point you put, I mean, maybe I was holding your hand, but at one point you put your hand like beneath my head and I was like, don't, 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 don't touch me. Yeah. You know, I was like so focused. I just wanted to get him out. Yeah. And um, we're going, we're going. The doctor says, okay, take her off Pitocin. They take me off Pitocin and my contractions basically stopped. And it was very, it was like a moment where I was like, oh no, oh no. Okay. Put her back on, put her back on. And it was about like maybe 20 minutes of 20 to 30 minutes, of 30 pushing. minutes of that. And, uh, his, what were you going to say? I would say, which by the way, 20 to 30 minutes, but it went by in a, the blink of an eye compared to everything that we had gone through. This was, this moment was so exciting. You were, well, it felt productive. It didn't feel like it, it was, maddening. it was yeah. productive, but also you were, I was exhausted just seeing the, amount of work that you were putting into this process. You know, I don't yeah. think professional athletes work as hard as you were working to get this baby out at that point. Well, I mean, thanks, but they, yeah, I mean, I was like, I was, f- I've never been that focused in my life. I wanted him out. And then I felt like there was some urgency also because, you know, I was worried about him. Uh, his, you know, his heart rate wasn't doing good. And I knew that's why they were like, we got to do this right now. Um, 
Yeah. I, you know, I was worried about it. It's yeah. like we came this far. And um, also, you know, the entire NICU had to come in because he had pooped, you know, he had expelled his meconium. And I remember the doctor saying to me, okay, just so you know, uh, there's going to be a lot of people in here. Okay. There's going to be a lot of people because we have the NICU and there's going to be a whole team. You know, we have to make sure everything's okay. And I said, I don't care. Yeah. After. I don't care. I don't care. Uh, anybody tell everybody to come in. I don't care. You know, like I, it did not matter to me at all. I did not care if I was pooping. I did not care anything. I was like, let's just do this. You get know, let's get this job done. And she was very encouraging because, you know, she said I was pushing so effectively, but it got to a point where she said, we need to help this baby come out a little faster. He's not doing great. We, we have to get him out, okay? So do I have your permission to do an episiotomy and vacuum him out? And I said, get him out. Get him out. And she said, okay, you're going to push with me. I'm just, you know, I'm just helping. I'm just helping. It's going to be 95% you, 5% me. And that's what they did. And they um, they cut me and they put the, the vacuum in, the suction cup in. And I pushed and I pushed. And do you remember the moment when his head came out? Yeah, yeah. Tell me uh, from your perspective remember, what that was like. I remember the vacuum. Oh, tell me what it was like. You know, you imagine this sophisticated medical device, but it's literally a squirt gun with a plunger at the end of it. That's what it looks like. Uh, <laughs> That's a great description. And they put it on the baby's head and they just pump it a couple times to get some suction. And then they literally just start using it to kind of pull them out. And I remember thinking that was a very bizarre moment because I remember thinking like, it just seems so rudimentary, you know, it just doesn't seem like a sophisticated medical device, but whatever. Right. It's working. Um, and I, I just remember also feeling a tiny bit disappointed. I know that a, an episiotomy was something that you weren't, that you were, if there was a fear coming into birth, it was that. And, oh, yeah. That was the number one thing on my birth plan that I didn't want. Right. But this is kind of what we were talking about earlier is just as is evidenced by this birth story. It's just like you got to be prepared to throw these things out because at that point it was like baby's heart rate. We just got to get him out. Yeah. Whatever it takes. Vacuum, episiotomy. Let's get him out. Yeah. Our, our son's head <laughs> emerges and you're doing great. And once his head was past the precipice and his head was fully out, he came out very quickly after that. So the vacuum basically helped get his head through. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah. And I then had it my was... eyes firmly shut. Right. Well, you were, I mean, it was, you were pushing as hard as you physically could. And that just, I feel like, required total concentration yeah. and, and total focus, which understandably so it wasn't that you had your eyes shut because you didn't want to see something it was just no i mean just... when they said that they were going to do an episiotomy too you know since that was my big fear i didn't really want to i don't know i don't know a lot was going on i yeah. wanted him out i wanted him to be safe yeah. i wanted you know it was almost like i was shutting my eyes wishing and hoping for a good outcome here so he comes out and you know everyone's like he's out he's out oh you did it and they shout the time of birth and I'm a mess. I look at you. You're a mess. We're both crying. They take him over. Did you go over to him? He comes out and he's immediately put on you for a brief amount of time. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And then he's picked up again and he's taken to the NICU station that they have set up in the room. It's wild. <laughs> it's a wild thing. And, and I stayed with you while they started there, you know, checking to him out. To clean him up and check him. Yeah. 
but the first like very visceral moment of joy and obviously like we it was a blur like they put him on you he had just come out and and that's a joyful moment but it it's happening so fast and you know he has to get checked out by the NICU so it doesn't feel like you're totally out of the woods yet there was a moment where the whole the three NICU doctors that were checking him out all had a vocal reaction to his pout. I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> yeah. They went, Aw. And I was just like, what? Like thinking, because uh, I'm on the edge of my seat, like they're checking him out to make sure everything's okay. Right, right. They all have this reaction. They're like, oh, he's just got the cutest pout. And I just remember in that moment just being like, mm. Okay. Like, we're going to be fine. Yeah, they seem relaxed, and so, therefore, you could relax. Yeah, and again, testament to our whole team. Everybody was just so, so great. Yeah. And and then there he was. Do you remember his APGAR? I think it was seven. I want to say it was seven, then nine. And then nine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But it was very encouraging. I was very proud of my son for doing well on on his first tests. Um, (laughs) Come on. (laughs) But I got to cut the umbilical cord. Which was... Well, they cut it, like, you got to cut it shorter, right. basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was another thing that I wanted was, like, delayed cord clamping. So, like, you know, this is another thing you just have to throw out if the baby's not going to be okay. Yeah. Delayed cord clamping. You wanted to see your placenta. Yeah. The doctors who delivered the baby, I, you know, they didn't really have time to look at my birth plan, you and, know? And, and so the placenta was gone long long gone by the time that I asked. Oh, no. Like, they were already stitching me up for a long time. Right. When I was like, oh, where's my placenta? And I remember the doctor's face. She was like, oh, uh, sorry. It's, I think it's gone already. Anyway, you know, newborns are very, very alert in the beginning, um, healthy newborns. And so they kind of cleaned them up. They did their thing. And then they gave them back to me. And, um, oh, man, I thought I was going to pass out. They moved us after the dust settled and the storm clouds cleared. Mm -hmm. They moved us out of labor and delivery into a recovery room. Mm -hmm. And you and him both passed out and just had a nice little nap. Mm, What did you do? I mean, I just sat and stared at you guys the whole time but (laughs) i I, want to say i remember i remember him sleeping and being very grateful that he slept for as long as he did when he did because he's a brand newborn and Mm -hmm. you don't know how long he's gonna he might nap for 30 minutes but it was i want to say it was a couple hours and you also got to sleep too i don't think i could have kept my eyes open anyway that was exhausting yeah no, you were At as exhausted yeah. as I've ever seen a person be exhausted. That's what I'm saying is like, it takes a lot. And that's kind of what this whole show's about. And, and it's not that way for everybody. But for yeah. you, it was... For me, it was marathon. Yeah. Yeah. Wait. It's now time for Dad to tell us all his top tips about getting baby to sleep. Let's talk about sleep. Like most topics that surround birth and child raising, it is not without its fair share of controversy. But I'm not going to tell you to buy some top-shelf newborn smart bassinet or advocate for or against sleep training when your child is ready. I'm just going to give you a few tips that I think apply to anybody anywhere to help that kid get to sleep. Take them, don't take them. This is what worked for us. Number one, temperature in the baby's room. In the early days, this probably means your room, but this applies especially to when baby moves into their own space. This was one of my biggest battles in the first year. Is the room too hot? Is it too cold? What if my kid is freezing or boiling? I'd wake up multiple times a night to check the temperature reading 
on the baby monitor, the joke between me and my wife was anytime we'd wake up, the first question out of my mouth would be, what's the temp? So here's what I did. Do you have central AC and heating? If the answer is yes, good for you. You've really leveled up in life. Very happy for you. But if you're like me and you don't, I highly recommend a plug-in thermostat. This thing will allow you to set a temperature, attach it to your space heater or your AC unit, and it'll automatically turn on or off to maintain the temperature you've selected. It is a game changer. Number two, white noise. It's all the rage, and it really does work. Apparently, the experience of being in the womb is like listening to a vacuum cleaner all the time, meaning it's pretty damn loud in there. White noise simulates that and really helps the little ones sleep peacefully. Invest in a good white noise machine, a powerful white noise machine, and it helps to have one that's rechargeable and portable. It helps on car rides or in other spontaneous nap situations. Check out Christie's website. There's a good one on there. Number three and the last tip. Not specifically about sleep, but certainly helpful around nap time, and that is the five S's. These methods for calming a newborn were created by a well-known published pediatrician named Harvey Karp. And the five S's are swaddle, side stomach, that counts as one, shush, swing, and suck. Learn how to swaddle. Master how to swaddle. In the early days, wrapping your newborn in a breathable cotton blanket calms them by simulating the feeling of being in the womb. And the results are pretty magical. Side stomach, your baby should always be on its back for sleep in the early months, but to help calm them and get them to sleep, laying them on their side or stomach while holding them can work wonders. Shush. This one is simple and ties back to my white noise tip. The shushing sound helps lull them into a peaceful state because it too simulates being in the womb. As does the fourth S, swing, which is a method where you hold the baby's head steady and just kind of gently jiggle or swing them. And this simulates the movement they felt in the womb. Last one is sucking talking about pacifiers or fingers here. If you're breastfeeding, that works too, but dads, it's offering a clean pinky or a pacifier for them to suck on. So that's it. That's all I got. If you remember one thing, remember that baby likes most things that simulate being in the womb. And who can blame them, really? And now back to the show. Do you remember what those first few days were like from your point of view? What was that like for you as a new father? (laughs) The days were blurry, joyful. You know, I think when you become a parent, there is just a mild hum of anxiety that hangs over your life because especially when you're a first time parent, you're worried about everything. And I can say now looking back on it, like you don't need to be worried about everything. I tend to overthink things. I was probably a little bit inside my own head in those first few days, but... What do you mean? Like, I'm trying to think what... I was worried about you. I mean, you were in... You were still recovering. You were in a significant amount of pain. pain. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of expectations that go into those first few days. Like, milestones you're supposed to hit and 
the milk coming in and the colostrum and all, all this stuff and like making sure he's pooping oh that was a whole thing oh, that was a whole, whole thing we didn't even thing. cover like we couldn't even leave the hospital until he pooped that was the first super proud moment i mean his first poop yeah was what got us to be able to go home we just uh, wanted to get home we just wanted, we to, be... wanted to get out of there yeah. and uh, the nurses were i had a, one nurse that was amazing one of them was a little bit rubbed me the wrong way i was in pain i had to fight for getting the pain medication that I needed and all that. But the main thing that was keeping us from leaving was the fact that the baby hadn't pooped yet. Right. And he had expelled his meconium in the womb. And so he just didn't want to poop. Yeah. And we had one nurse that was a real advocate for like trying to help him poop. Mm-hmm. I don't even remember. She gave him a suppository. She gave him a suppository and she gave him a little stir. A little like poke with a... Yeah. With a little, uh, and she did that thermometer. It was like the floodgates opened, and this kid pooped so hard. He pooped. (laughs) I I was just like, I I came out of a tiny person. (laughs) I got so teary eyed because I was so proud of him. Not only because he was doing what he was supposed to do finally, but also because we could finally go home. Yeah, and we just wanted to go home, and yeah. So we took the. Five minute drive home, we get him out and we get him to sleep for the first time. And you and I got our favorite meal delivered. We brought a TV into the bedroom, we sat on our bed and we ate our dinner. And I just remember that being one of the best (laughs) meals ever. No more hospital food. You got to eat a proper meal. You were no longer pregnant. One thing I will say is. I just got so used to it in my pregnancy, feeling nauseous all the time and feeling like not well all the time, that the second the baby was out of me, the nausea was gone. It was like an unbelievable feeling. Honestly, I I forgot what it was like to not feel nauseous. That's how sick I was my entire pregnancy. And then I was starving because I'd never really been hungry in my entire pregnancy. I was so excited to eat. We were just so happy to be home. That's the bottom line. Thrilled to be home. It was the best feeling. And also there was like this elation, you know, because we'd done it and we had this, we were parents now and this baby was like amazing. Yeah. It was quite the moment. Our lives were different now. Yeah. Is there anything that you wish you had been more prepared for in those early days? You know, just so you know, I felt very taken care of by you. And I felt very understood and seen by you. I think that I personally was going through some intense new, it was like a new level of our relationship. I had to be vulnerable with you in a way that I never had been before. Yeah. I mean, the first time that I had a bowel movement, I thought I was going to die. Yeah. And I realized that I needed help. And I had to like open the door and yell down the hall and ask you to please bring me a sits bath. And I was crying. I couldn't even speak. Yeah. Yeah. And like those sort of moments, you know, were, I mean, a new level of intimacy. Is there anything that maybe you would prepare someone who's going to be a father for anything? As it pertains to the baby, not really. I would say read a book about being a new dad and what to expect, Mm -hmm. and you'll get the information you need. I don't think I was fully prepared for what you were going to experience. I don't ever remember feeling overwhelmed by taking care of him in those first few days. 
the hardest stuff was what you were going through. How did you feel like you would have helped me better? I don't know anything differently that you could have done. Yeah. So your job as a father in those first few weeks is to be as selfless as you can be. Sleep only after baby and mom get sleep. You're third in line. Mm. Yeah. Just do that. Just be there for baby, but don't forget about mom and having to recover from what she just went through. And so I think that that if there was a shock in those first few weeks, it was just the amount of coping you had to do with your new situation, with your body, with recovering from the episiotomy, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. I think that we did really well. I mean, yeah, I didn't really, I didn't really have any like, holy shit moments. No, no, no. What about going back to work? What was that like for you? Did you have any anxiety about that? Were you like kind of happy to go back to work? Or was that just not even a thing? Going back to work sucked a little bit, if only because I missed you guys because I just spent some hardcore quality time at home with you and the baby and he was still young and every day was a new thing he was doing and I was missing some of those things. But at the same time, the grass is always greener. In our case, when you're the mom who's at home with baby all the time, I'm sure you would have loved to have gotten out of the house and been amongst other adults. Uh, um, yeah. I mean, I do remember the early days of being like very happy. Like I felt very happy. I didn't really feel the baby blues. I I would honestly say that the first few weeks after he was born, in spite of the fact that I had a lot of pain, I didn't feel like mentally I felt I felt very happy. And I think I felt very taken care of by you. And I just felt like really, really happy with our little family. And I think that it got harder for me for sure when you went back to work. Because suddenly I'm, you know, so in the deep end, and you worked really long hours. Yeah, of course, that was that was harder. But I I missed you. Yeah, it's a a big adjustment. Yeah, it is a big adjustment. There were days where I would see him for 20 minutes before I left for work. And I feel like this is something that a lot of dads experience if they're working long hours. That was tough. So I sat down with my bosses at work and I requested that I can I shift my schedule where I'm coming in later and leaving later. And my bosses were very open to that. So then I was spending like two hours of quality time with him in the morning. You got to sleep in, in Mm -hmm. that case. Mm -hmm. I was still missing bedtime, but I got in the habit of sending videos of me talking to him that you could show him before bed. And it's an adjustment, but I guess it goes along the lines of like, be vocal about what would be your ideal scenario, advocate for yourself. And I did that at work and they were totally open to it. I was Mm -hmm. still working the same amount of hours. I was just doing it shifted two hours later and they were fine with that yeah you were lucky enough to have the ability to do that that was great um i know that for me i had a a difficult journey of coming back into my body and understanding my body or getting to know my new body and loving my body i had some a lot of issues with my healing and in my my sexual body i felt like a stranger now You were always extremely patient with me and very loving and very there for me in my dark moments. But I guess if we could talk candidly about that for a second, is there anything that maybe you want to communicate to me 
Was that really hard for you at all? The fact that sex was so painful for me or that I didn't want to have sex. And I, I, I mean, I remember feeling some sort of like despair over the fact that I didn't recognize my body and that I felt like um, at certain moments that my vagina was basically going to be forever screwed up is did, how I felt. Did you feel guilt about um, me, about my whatever my... no 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 you never made me feel like you were pressuring me or want you know like it wasn't really about that it was more so that i i wanted to and felt like i couldn't connect with you sexually like everything that used to feel good for me now felt excruciatingly painful and it seemed like all the things my friends were telling me like just try more lube and try you know that wasn't really helping and we're talking now about like you know a few months down the line and it was still painful. I don't really know what I'm asking. We've obviously talked about it in our private life, but just to kind of let certain couples that might be going through a similar situation know like the deal about that. From your point of view, how was that experience? I mean, who cares how <laughs> how it was for me? Like be patient. Just just deal with it when your wife or partner is ready to be sexual again, then then that's when it's time to be sexual again, period. You know, it doesn't matter. Be patient. Just just go with it. There are certainly ways to, like you said, like you wanted to be sexual, but you didn't necessarily feel like your body was ready for it. Get creative. There are ways to be sexual without intercourse. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. I but would also, just... like, the sleep deprivation is obviously something people don't really understand until they're going through it. Like, oh, that's that plays real. a huge... That's real. Like, you get yeah. in bed and you do not want to do anything but go to sleep. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, suck it up, I would say, to anybody who's like, well, wah, you know? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> just from my, my personal experience, just, it's not about you. It's, not, it's about baby. It's about mom, period. Be patient. Those things will return. It might be slower than you expect. It might be quicker than you expect. As a dad, you're a passenger on the journey in the early days. You're not piloting the ship. At that point, I feel like you are there to care for baby and mom. And that's your whole job. So your needs need to get kind of put on the back burner. Just communicate. Just talk to each other. Be very open and honest and clear about how you're feeling and what you're going through at any given moment, sexually, otherwise. I mean, we're talking about we're talking about sex specifically post-birth but yeah in general just fucking talk to each other and get as much information out there as you can yeah communication is a requirement after you have a kid because you need to schedule a little bit (laughs) uh well i love you there's no one that i've ever met who's as good of a father as you are so well thank you uh i love you back you have been a phenomenal mother and a total warrior through this whole process, even now reliving it with you for this conversation. I do remember saying multiple times in the hospital that you were the strongest person I've ever known and that that was the hardest thing I've ever seen anybody go through. And so thank you for that. And now let's go get a good night's sleep. (laughs) Okay. Isn't he the best? I mean, see why I married that man? 
I know. I love him. By the way, my husband, Josh, has a podcast that's out right now also. It's called American Skyjacker, The Final Flight of Martin McNally. It is a thrilling true crime adventure that will have you clutching the edge of your seat. I'm so proud of him. The show is amazing. Please check it out. You're welcome in advance because it's so great. Go subscribe to it. It's American Skyjacker, The Final Flight of Martin McNally. Thank you, Josh. I love you. If you like this show and you want to support me, the easiest way to do that is to rate, subscribe, and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm already working hard on bringing you season two, and I have some really, really fun episodes planned, including some more interviews with new moms, as well as episodes where I am going to interview birth workers and experts like doctors, lactation consultants, pelvic health gurus, and more. So go and subscribe so you don't miss a single episode when season two launches because it's coming soon. Visit birthshow.com for some great free resources and supplies that are going to help you on your own journey into motherhood and join our tribe by following us on Instagram at birthshow. You can also support the show by sending a one-time donation. All those links are listed in the show notes. Thank you for joining me on this very exciting season and for being in my tribe. We are in this together, mamas. Humanity depends on us. We'll see you soon in season two. I'm Christy Williams, and this is Birth. This is a Sync Studios production.